We praise the Lord for his saving grace and for that assurance of what Scripture calls our blessed hope. One day we shall be with him and be like him. The confirmed death toll from the disaster in Turkey and Syria now exceeds 46,000 people. In the coming weeks, they are expecting that number to soar. One estimate I saw recently was into the hundreds of thousands of people. Last Friday, though, fully 11 days after the uh, the February 6th earthquake, Rescuers rejoiced when they recovered yet three more survivors. And I read just this morning that even yesterday they found two more, uh, a couple that were uh, discovered together. Uh, Christians share in that joy over every life that has been spared, given some more time on this earth. Piles of collapsed buildings are, are, and the devastation there has just been awful to, to view. And yet our joy for those that have somehow survived it is tempered by the reality that likely the vast majority of those that were killed died without Christ. And even beyond that, those that survived that catastrophe are, uh, for, for most of them, it is just not likely that they are going to turn to Christ in what days or years they have still remaining. Of course, that tragic reality extends far beyond the borders of Turkey and Syria, and reaches the population to the very ends of the world. That's the sad reality, that although God offers the gift of salvation to everyone, and yet most people will die without Christ. Well, that's true in Greenville as well. Although by God's grace, we do seem to have a higher percentage of believers in our population. We can get used to that and just accept it as normal. Most people are just never going to trust Christ. Or we could just get discouraged by that reality and give up hope that it's ever going to change. But the Lord would not be pleased with either of those responses. In today's passage, and I I urge you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 10 as we finish this chapter today, that in this passage, Paul is describing for us what God has done, his provision to make sure that all that is possible on our part and the part of others uh, to change that reality to be the answer to this worldwide dilemma of people dying without Christ. 
It is not up to us to change the proportion of those that get saved. Although God does assign responsibility, gospel responsibility, to every one of us. God's uh, determination there that everyone shares this gospel responsibility. But let's narrow that right down to the individual. What does that mean for you? Well, the means for you, you have a gospel responsibility. This passage is written to compel each of us to decide to do my part. You do your part. You have a responsibility. Paul begins this passage by... Uh, by looking at the responsibility that all people have, every person in the room, every person in the world shares a gospel responsibility. Why? Because God has assigned it to you. That's why you have a role here. In verses 14 and 15, that's specifically uh, for believers. Believers have this responsibility to present the gospel, to share the gospel with others. Paul tells us this in an unusual way. He has a sequence of four rhetorical questions, and for each one of them, the answer is just obvious. But it is that he is asking the question and making us think about the answer. This is a chain of questions, telling us that it is God's plan that people share the message of the word. He says, having just in verse 13, having confirmed that anybody can trust Christ as Savior, the opportunity there is open to everyone. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But it's the calling on the name of the Lord that is that crucial element. That is the actual event of saving grace, changing a life. How do we get there? Well, now Paul traces that process, that chain, in reverse and shows how each, each part depends on the preceding step. And then we'll see where this ends up. But verse 14, he begins by asking, how then will they call on him, that final crucial step of salvation, how will they call on him in whom they've never believed? Well, there isn't any way. If they don't believe, they won't call. They can't call. Or any call would turn out to be a false profession without genuine faith behind it. Further, he asks, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Well, there's no way. They can't. They have to hear. He has yet another question in verse 14. How are they to hear without someone preaching? 
Now at that point, don't be thinking in terms of those who have been uh, called to preach in full-time vocational ministry. The preaching here extends to everyone. Now maybe you're a little more comfortable in relation to yourself calling this share the truth. Preach the truth, speak the gospel, share the message, tell other people the good news. There are lots of ways of saying it, but it's very important we all understand. It's very important that you understand this includes you. You have this responsibility because God has assigned it. How can they call without believing? How can they believe without hearing? How can they hear without someone to tell them? There we are. That's us. In God's plan, people must share the message of the word. Verse 15, he takes that one step further. With another question, he says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? What's Paul's particular point there? Unless they are sent. That seems to put the the responsibility even further back than the individual. And the first answer to that has to be, well, that's God himself. How are they to preach unless someone sends them? Well, God is the only one who has that authority. Once again, though, let's not limit to the application of this. this we, we tend to look at that verse as referring to uh, those that are called to go somewhere else to share the good news. It includes that, and includes the Taklobes in the Philippines. It includes every other missionary, as we call them, wherever God has called them to go. But it also, it also includes all of us, whose call may, in fact, be to stay right where you are, serve God in the circle of of relationships and contacts that he has provided for you and to tell them. This whole passage is all about God assigning that responsibility. You don't have to wait for him to call about that. He's already done that. And he's done that in many ways in different forms, different words elsewhere in Scripture But that's the message here. God has assigned gospel responsibility to his people. It all begins with God's call. But in the outworking of that call, that also involves another entity that Paul doesn't name here, but he does seem to have this in mind because of the way God's call works, both at home and for foreign missions, that God calls an individual, but then God also directs that individual's church family to send them, to be willing to let them go, to deprive ourselves of the blessing of their fellowship and their ministry 
and to send them somewhere else. That's how it worked with Paul. Paul was quite comfortable in the city of Antioch. We don't know what his long-term plans were at that point. Antioch in those days were in the country of Syria. It is today in the country of Turkey. Isn't that remarkable to think of the very place, a Muslim country, where the earthquake took place so recently, where we expect to find so few believers, was one time the very starting point of gospel missions. It was from Antioch that God called Paul and Barnabas, the very first missionaries to go to foreign countries. God called, but in Acts 13, it was the church that also needed to respond. The church willing to send these beloved uh, members of their church to go elsewhere and to come back they didn't know when, but to be willing to send them. And so verse 15 seems to be describing this second aspect of believers presenting the gospel. People must share the message, but churches must send the messengers and be willing and by God's grace even eager to do so. We've had the privilege of doing that with uh, a number of our members. Uh, That would include the Tyclobes that I was just with uh, a week ago. Uh, They're part of our church family. They still are in our church directory. It includes the Wagners and others. And there have been others that have been members here for a while, but they also have a home church, a sending church. But God is actively at work calling. It does seem that those who are willing to respond to that call are a diminishing number. There is a serious shortage of of people willing to go to foreign countries. The the mission agencies have long lists of people approaching retirement age, and sadly, a short list of those that are willing to go to take their place. We rejoice in those that God has already sent. We thank God for people like the Gibbons. And we are going to have a a special prayer request uh, with the Gibbons when they return to London in uh, April or May of this year. They'll be with us giving their uh, report after their first term at the beginning of April. But Jan and I visited them this past summer, and they They were uh, entertaining the prospect, looking for a place to start a new church. As you know, they've had their their four years of experience working under a a national pastor, but God had called them to plant a church. And so that's what they are planning to do when they go back. But what a fearful prospect. They've got a location in mind now, but there are no people there. And to be uh, starting a new church all on their own without support and encouragement, no missionary uh, relishes that aspect of the experience. Uh, 
But God has done something remarkable, and he's done it right here among our church family. Some, no doubt, already know this, but for many months now, God has been working in the hearts of Ian and Brooke Crook. Faithful members here, faithful Sunday school teachers, effective Sunday school teachers, serving the Lord in in, uh, other ways as well. But they've been sensing a burden to help the Gibbons. The Gibbons already knew that when Jan and I were there, and they were praying that God would direct them. Well, just in the last 10 days or so, they've received their official acceptance from Gospel Fellowship Association missions. They've been accepted as short-term missionaries. They are ready to commit for one year and then reassess after that. And I have to tell you, the Gibbons are beside themselves with excitement about that. But you see, we're going to have a role there as well. Some people are wondering, who are the crooks? Here they are, and no, Brooke does not want to stand, but she will. Uh, Setting an example for her children, Ian, would you stand? All five of them are going to go. We're only seeing four of them right now. All five are going to go. A sacrifice for our church? Yes. A sacrifice for their family here? Yes. But a blessing to the work of the gospel. Thank you. It is going to be our privilege to send them. They're anticipating August. Uh, Give the Givens a little time to get settled, find a new home for them, and so forth. And then... Uh, but, but there's a prayer request connected with that. They're going to need a visa. Tourist visa won't work so well because they won't even be able to rent a home. So they, they need to go through this complicated process. They're just beginning that now. Part of our sending them would be our prayer support, and that needs to begin now. Verses 16 and 17 turn to another assignment that God gives. Believers have a responsibility. The lost have a responsibility. What's their responsibility to the gospel? It's to accept it. It's a choice they have to make. Us presenting the gospel cannot compel anybody to make a change in their life. Only God can do that, and only they can respond. They have to respond in faith. So verse 16 brings us to that reality. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. That's actually a figure of speech where uh, it is a form of understatement to emphasize the reality that very few have responded to the gospel. On the one hand, Paul has Jewish people in mind here. As we know, chapters 9, 10, and even chapter 11 that we'll still get to, that these are all focused on why the Jews are not coming in, in huge numbers to Christ. Why are they mostly in the realm of unbelief? 
And does that mean there's some failure in God's promise and God's plan? And Paul is at great pains to show there's no failure on God's part, but they have refused. They bear the responsibility. Despite all God's provisions, still in unbelief. But in the larger sense, this applies to unbelievers of every category, of every ethnic background, that most people in our world today are continuing in unbelief. And only they ultimately can change that. Verse 16, then, what do they have to do? They have to believe the message of the word. Currently, most are not doing that. They have, but Paul says it this way, they have not all obeyed the gospel. He didn't use the word believe here, but Paul is advancing the argument one step further. It's one thing to believe. That sounds like it's all in my head or in my heart. To call it obey reminds us that it includes the whole life. Aligning the life with the plan of God. It's not just I'll make a mental uh, assent. It has to include that. It includes the mind, but it includes the whole life. Genuine faith in Christ always includes obedience. And the goal to bring the whole life into line with God's plan Very few, then, have obeyed the gospel. This comes as no surprise. Isaiah prophesied this. He says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And this very phraseology expresses the heartache. I've been telling people, Lord, says Isaiah, but it's so few as if he he can hardly think of any that have responded positively. And that's on them. They must believe the message of the word. Verse 17 then points out the second part of that. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Here he zeroes in, uh, really emphasizing the second and third links of that chain of questions. Hearing must receive but must precede believing. And believing must result in receiving. There's the responsibility of the lost. But he's also circling back and stating that, that that also includes our responsibility. They have to hear. They can't generate that on their own. We have to give them the opportunity to hear. On Thursday this past week, it was not, uh, not a convenient time, didn't fit uh, a ton to close schedule to drive me back to the airport, so I just insisted, well, just, just find a, a driver, a vehicle. They have their own local version of Uber. So in that In that car, I had a conversation with the driver on the way to the Manila airport. It was about, well, it was supposed to be an hour. It took a little bit longer 
than that. Uh, traffic there is amazing. His English was a little bit broken, but I, I think we were understanding each other pretty well. Uh, a few questions revealed that he is a single business professional who lost his job during COVID. Uh, as you may recall, the Philippines uh, was notable for their extreme response to COVID, uh, just shutting things down. And I heard a little bit of how that affected the Tyclobe family last week. Now he's trying to make his living by, by using his vehicle to drive people around. When I asked about his religious beliefs, he immediately identified with what is called in the Philippines, Iglesia de Cristo. And I had seen a huge, very impressive, very beautiful structure on the side of the main road going through Manila. I had passed that several times. And that was what he's identifying with, uh, that that's his church. That's what he grew up with. Well, that's a sect, a branch of Christianity of sorts, that has some very serious issues. Probably the most serious is that they don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They are a form of Unitarians. There's only one God and only one person, and we were back and forth on that topic for a while. And he, he pretty much got stuck there. I was trying to, uh, to explain to him how Scripture says Jesus Christ is himself God, and nothing less than God could pay for our sin. Oh, no, no, he, he, was, he was stubborn in his unbelief. And that, that stalemate was frustrating, but it was also sad. That was pretty much the conclusion of our conversation. There was no moving on from that point. But you know, our role is to say the truth, to speak the gospel. God does not hold us responsible for their response. At the same time, we can't regard that as wasted effort. Oh, I tried to tell somebody about Christ, and they didn't respond, so oh, why should I bother? Well, who knows if maybe the word that he heard last Thursday might have lodged in his heart. Perhaps God would convict him of sin. Perhaps he'll be more open the next time a witness comes. But then there's the question for us. Will there be a next time? Will the next opportunity find a believer willing to speak? That has to become our goal. Every new individual that we encounter... Somebody else has probably already shared the gospel in some form, and you get to be the next one. We cannot gauge success by being a part of the capstone. I got to be the one that led him to Christ. That's wonderful when that happens. 
But we need to be just as pleased, just as fulfilled with the prospect that maybe I can be one more step that brings this person to Christ. See, neither rejection by many, many people, nor the role of the church as a whole. Look, there are other people. They can do their part. None of that excuses us. I'd like to urge you to make it a daily prayer request on your part. Every day, include in your prayer to God, Lord, would you give me an opportunity today? Give me discernment to see it, what it happens. And give me boldness to do my part. Would you join in that? Would you make that commitment that every day you will ask God for an opportunity to fulfill your responsibility? Now, people are not the only ones with a personal role of gospel outreach to the lost. The rest of our passage today shows that God reserves gospel responsibility for himself. He's not unloading all of this on us. He has a role here as well. Look what he's doing. First of all, in verses 18 and 19, he is graciously revealing himself to unsaved people, and thereby the Lord eliminates excuses. Nobody is ever going to be able to look at the Lord at the white throne judgment and say, it's not my fault that I'm not saved. God has eliminated all the excuses. First of all, in verse 18, he has made the word, the very word that is necessary for faith, he's made it available. Paul asks another question in verse 18. I ask, have they not heard? And he answers that this time. And he says, indeed they have. Now in confirming that from the Old Testament, Paul does something that's a little bit peculiar. We would call it taking something out of context. But Paul cannot be guilty of that. He is writing under inspiration. The Holy Spirit is directing him to quote from Psalm 19, which in that early part of the passage is describing what we call natural revelation. That is what people can discern about God by just looking around, by observing creation. They can conclude the only... only legitimate conclusion is that there is a God, and he is great, and I need to know him. You cannot look at a tree and realize Christ died on the cross for my sins. That A tree does not communicate that message, but that there is a God in this world, that he is powerful, that he is in control, that he made all things. Now, what Paul is doing is taking that reality, which in his quotation, he says uh, from uh, Psalm 19, he says, their voice has gone out to all the earth. 
and their words to the ends of the world. In natural revelation, it's creation. It's everywhere. You can't go anywhere in the world and not see it. But Paul now, by analogy, is applying that to the spread of the gospel. And it is now not through God creating everywhere. It is by God dispersing his people all across the globe. Now, there's a little bit of poetic hyperbole when he says their words to the ends of the world, the ends of the inhabited world. This is not a guarantee that every person has heard the gospel, but that the word of Christ is available. Somebody looks at creation and concludes there's got to be a God. Well, that God has written his word, and somebody that wants to know that God can one way or another have access to the truth. If by nothing else than uttering a prayer to God as Cornelius did in Acts chapter 9, and God sending a messenger. God has made the word available. Further in verse 19, Paul asserts that he has made the word understandable. He asks another question. But I ask, did Israel not understand? And once again, the answer here is yes. This is not that God made the gospel too complicated. I don't get it. I don't understand. That's not the issue. And he again quotes from the Old Testament. He says, this is from the book of Deuteronomy. He says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. God's response here to the unbelief of his chosen people is to take that same gospel message and offer it to the rest of the world. As if to say, see, See, they want it. Well, these are people that are ignorant in the sense that the Jews have all this Bible background. But God has made the gospel so simple that people without a college education, people without a theological background can hear the gospel and they can understand. Essentially, that verse in Deuteronomy, and as Paul is quoting it, is calling the Gentiles fools. But it's not in a derogatory manner. It just means these are people without that background, and how simple is the gospel? I can share it with them, and they get it. People can get this. Nobody, again, standing at the great white throne before God is going to be able to say, it was just too complicated for me to understand. No, God has made the gospel understandable.
verses 20 and 21 then. So what's going on here? He's still focused on God fulfilling his role. And verse 20 says, in spite of the rejection of, by so many people, God is still saving those who receive the word. And it goes on every day, all around the world. He quotes Isaiah to say this. It says, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself. See where God is active there. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. I'm going to read the original from Isaiah. Isaiah 65, verse 1. Isaiah says it this way. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Listen to this. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Did you just see God's heart there? I am what you need. You don't even know what you need, but I'm the one. Here I am. Here I am. Here's God's initiative. God inviting anyone, everyone, to come. God is still actively saving the lost. What about those that are stubbornly refusing? Verse 21 closes this chapter by saying, God is still seeking those who reject the word. He has not given up. Verse 21 of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient, contrary people, but they remain outstretched just the same. Wouldn't you think God would get discouraged all this time, all of these rejections? But here he is, arms still open, inviting people to come. Here I am. I'm the one you need. See, in so doing, God himself sets our example. The example of perseverance. God continually, patiently offers his grace in the face of continual rejection. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, we face some rejection and, oh, we're ready to give up. Oh, that's not God's plan. God's plan is that you persevere. You have that responsibility. I saw a sad note in the headlines about the tragedy in, in Turkey and Syria. That is that many countries sent rescue crews to help in finding survivors. But now, almost two weeks later, 
they've pretty much all gone home. Why would they do that? Because the time limit that somebody can survive without food and water in the extreme weather conditions that they're facing, there's a limit to how long they can last. Probably someday this week we'll hear that even the nationals have called off the search for survivors and now all they're looking for are dead bodies. It's coming a time where there won't be any more rescued. And there's coming such a time for the lost as well. God's plan, he's not revealed when that's going to be. We don't know how much more time there is. But we do know there's a limit. There's coming a day when God's outstretched, open, inviting arms are going to drop. The invitation will be gone. And the opportunity to share the gospel will be over. That puts pressure on two points here. First of all, if you don't know Christ, if you're not sure you've ever called to him for salvation, the time may be short. There is an urgency. The call of the gospel is trust Christ today. Don't risk what another day may bring. But this also brings an urgency to God's people. It can always look like, well, there'll be lots of time. Maybe there'll be somebody else that will talk to that person. And we're really good at finding excuses why I really don't think I have to say anything. I don't really know what to say. But there's an urgency here because we don't know when the end is going to come. The last opportunity. How many are you willing to bypass? Thinking, oh, there'll be another one. Again, I'd like to urge that you decide today, just as those without Christ must decide today, to trust Christ as Savior. Decide today to take your responsibility. God, would you help me to see every opportunity you bring each day. Help me to expect it. Help me to be bold in seizing it. Both for the lost and for God's people both for receiving the gospel and sharing the gospel, they all require God's help. He's ready to help you. Will you turn to him now? Let's bow for prayer. Father, we praise you for your outstretched hands, for your open invitation. We pray, Father, that there would be some today 
who would stop their stubborn resistance and would choose to call upon Christ for salvation. We pray as well, Father, as you have laid the responsibility upon all of your people. Father, help each one of us then to respond by, by a willingness to do our part. Would you help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.